We are on episode 385. 358. I've I've done that three times today, said 385 for some reason. Play that number. Yeah, 358. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 358, is recorded live February 8th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the soon-to-be-snowy west side, southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and uh, we already have snow, but we're going to get, what What they say, about another foot? Yeah, they're saying at least a foot. Uh, I've, the, the kids on the robotics team are saying it's 18 inches, but yeah, they, they, they listen to the optimistic meteorologist, but it's been a little bit unusual, and they've already canceled all the school for tomorrow. So the public school kids are all excited. Also joining us this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing okay, but when I finish this beverage, I'll be doing better. <laughs> and we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing most excellent, Darren. Uh, it's good to be here. And how are you doing tonight? I am doing wonderful. Thank you. I uh, made it home fine. I, and I ran into something that was a little unusual. You know how every time anybody talks about a storm around here, uh, you go in the grocery store and <laughs> the, all the aisles are empty of bread and milk. Uh, I got to the gas station the in Baroda, I, you know, swiped the card into the the pump and put the handle into the the vehicle to start filling it up, and nothing came out. They had run out of gas, which I can't say I've I remember the last time that happened. Uh, I I guess they still had three hundred gallons in the tank, but un, I were apparently unable to get it out. Uh, mm-hmm. That they said that they'd have a truck in a little bit, which I did come back later and fill up. They were willing to sell me the the plus or the premium. But I figured that at the, uh, you know, the another 40 or 50 cents a, a gallon, I could wait. Sure. After the truck fills it, you know, you get lots of water and your gas all mixed up. And Is that how it works? That's how it works. Ah. Never fill up right after the truck gets oh, there. Well, I, it I, stirs all that stuff up, and boy, you're really? going to have poor mileage for the next tank. Oh. If it, if it doesn't freeze up on you. Yeah, well, I I didn't wait for the truck to show up. I had a meeting that I that was about four hours long, and then came back. So hopefully it had settled out by then. Hey, so you ought to be okay. Yeah, you you might remember the red flag days and the yellow flag days of the nineteen seventies. Oh, I do remember that. That was a uh, little before I was driving, but we still had uh, uh, gas rationing had just ended about the time I got my license. Yep. Those naughty cars. Of course, my first car was a 72 Oldsmobile Cutlass that got a whopping, I think, 11.9 miles to the gallon. 11.9? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bad thing. I'm usually well, about like 12, 14 in my, my truck. Yeah. So. Well, for a car. Yeah, at, that point, <laughs> at that point, you know, most gas pumps were mechanical and only had two digits. So yeah. it was, you, you couldn't get over 
when it went over a buck a gallon, they had to start selling it by the half gallon. <laughs> you remember those days, Mac? Gas less than a buck a gallon? I can remember having a gas for down in Alabama, 17 cents a gallon. Oh. Uh, tw- 29 and 9 is the cheapest I can remember. <laughs> 30 cents a gallon. I, I can remember as a kid seeing like 59 cents. And then once after I was driving, uh, when gas is normally about a buck ninety nine, I can remember a place did a promotion that was ninety nine cents. So that's the cheapest I ever paid was ninety nine. I can still remember people swearing they'd never pay a dollar a gallon. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I can remember, uh, you know, milk was always more expensive than gasoline. It seems like. And I and I couldn't I couldn't figure out why everybody's complaining. It seems like it would be the other way around. But well, I'd like to thank everybody who's joining us this week. We have quite a few people in the chat room uh, slowly coming in. Uh, we have uh, Karen and we have Dave and we had Derek, who's uh, from the future, in there joining us. I'd like to thank thank you for listening. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Let's see. The first article we have is a diving body is calling for stiffer standards. And this is, let me see if I can pronounce this. It's, it's, it's one of those names I read all the time, but then when you say it, you, you, you can't quite get it. Uh, Siobhan Bartholomew? Well, we've got Trinidad and Tobago. Is that Tobago? Kind of sounds like Winnebago. Tobago. Uh, Tobago. Uh, so, uh, they say down there that divers usually compete for the limited jobs, but disappearance of their co- uh, the colleague, Siobhan uh, Bartholomew, has uh, brought to the diving community are calling for an end to commercial scuba air diving in TNT. In an interview yesterday, President of the Diving Association of TNT, Rupert Paul, said this form of air diving posed serious risk. He said Bartholomew, if Bartholomew had a helmet and a hose, he would not have gone missing. Uh, the association will meet the, the TNT Bureau of Standards on February 15th to discuss the proposed ban, demanding legislative action to change how they protect divers. The association said companies operating within the oil and gas sector must be regulated. He said stipulations should be made to outfit divers with helmets and hoses rather than scuba gear when doing commercial air diving jobs. Paul said this method was not safe for commercial divers as they have no lifeline or surface communication. He said... Scuba diving is more cost-effective. We think scuba should only be used for recreational purposes or for filming of documentaries. But as far as shipping jobs are concerned, it should be stopped. Association member Antonio O'Connor said scuba divers have no form of communication unless using signals that have some contact with somebody on the surface. Once it is commercial diving, you should not be doing scuba. This has been outlawed in England and America. With scuba, you don't have continuous flow of air and you work with limited time and depth. You know that divers are underpaid for high-risk jobs. He said companies must have qualified supervisor and job, a proper safety profile for the job, and proper contingency plan. Their area where Bartholomew disappeared had over 100 feet of water. Trinidad has about 130 divers who competed to get the jobs, but the disappearance of the divers forced many to take stock at potential risks. So Mac, uh, in in the U.S., if you're doing a commercial job like that, you you're always going to be uh, tethered. Not always. I'm concerned a couple of items that did not say what the guy was doing, which I thought would be quite important in determining if 
doing scuba at 100 feet was it was a hazard or not. You know, it could have been go down and take a look at something on the bottom, come back up. For that, why would I need generally without knowing the you know the constraints of the job? I don't think that necessarily needs a, a, a system for that. But by the same token, if you go back and read this, there is a commercial under there is a commercial diving course they have down that started in 2014, and that's in Trinidad. And just to give you an idea, they may be trying to drum up businesses. They've got three courses there. It starts at forty-five thousand dollars. The second course is twelve thousand. Third course is fourteen hundred. And that fourth, the third course was how to use a Kirby Morgan mask and how to you know maintain it. Mm-hmm. So they have the technology, they have the system to train. So I'm I don't understand what what their issue was. Did somebody hire them to do a commercial job? Or is that what they're doing? Is trying to classify what a commercial job is? Well, I'm. It sounds like uh, this. These are commercial jobs, and they must do some sort of freelance bidding process because they made a point that everybody's competing with each other, and it must be that the amount of pay that everybody's willing to do it for is not enough to for them to have that equipment. And it, since it's not a requirement, you know, the uh, commercial outfitters aren't providing it. If I go down and change the problem on a boat. Fishing boat, tugboat. Mm-hmm. Do I need hard hat gear? I mean, my thought is no. Provided that I mean, you're talking, you know, a twenty or thirty footer. It's something that one person can can manage, and you've taken proper, you know, tag out type precautions so that somebody doesn't, you know, uh, turn you into a, a, a little. So you mean in. common sense? Yeah. Right. Common sense. So I need to be paying an extra for a hard hat guy to do something that's common sense. No, I, what, I, I just don't understand the, the whole, you know, what what caused that issue, what was the job, and what's the big deal if they already have diving programs on there for commercial divers. And I, I kind of object to making it sound so they, they never have accidents with hard hat divers. I mean, granted, the commercial industry has fewer accidents than, than recreational, but you can't just say that he's automatically accident prone just because he's a scuba equipment. I mean, you know, there's... It's going to be better for some some jobs. So some jobs you need service support. The other aspect for the forty five thousand dollars, I was reading on there on the website for the company that provides this, looking at when the class starts, it's a week class, which doesn't make any sense to me. So the class is now are the are is this in American dollars? It's not like they use something like, like rupees or something else, is it? Well, it says forty five thousand. I do not know if there's some kind of you know other factor for the for the pay rate. I don't know. I do know on the first one called surface supply diver training, they talk about salvage, gas and oil fill diving, forming concrete, jetting, dredging, explosives, cutting, welding, pipelines and flanges, chamber operators, dive gear, diving physics and physiology, rigging, underwater inspection, dive medicine, law, ethics and seamanship navigation. Forty five thousand dollars. The second part of that for 12000 is hyperbaric chamber operator training. And let's see, the third part was three, and that was where they talked about uh, Kirby, Morgan, uh, Kirby Morgan operator slash user maintenance course. And Kirby Morgan is a, can be a hard hat or a band man. Mm-hmm. Which I would expect something like that as a, a, a one-day class or less. Right. Now, the TNT grouping together, that's an organization they were talking about scuba diving and they want to have a requirement there that if you're going to be diving out there or get trained you have to do their course and they oh. won't acknowledge that if you come down and you want to get a job 
Mm-hmm. Well, you've got to do a minimum of five dives with them to their standard before they'll accept your current certification. Yeah, it kind of sounds to me like like a, a group is trying to capitalize on an accident there and get so they have you know get to put in a lot more legislation to kind of rule out all their competition. I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, it, it does kind of smell that way a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, this Hello. tends to. To be interesting, the MH370 search boat goes dark near Shipwreck. Uh, the state-of-the-art vessel tasked with finding the missing Malaysian airline flight 370 mysteriously switched off its atomic identification system, AIS, for more than three days, sending some observers into meltdown. Seabed constructor AIS was disabled on January 31st, exactly 10 days into the new search, and not reconnected until last night leaving approximately 80 hours unaccounted for. Amateur aviation specialist and MH370 watchers have been charting constructors' progress since it left port in Durban on January 2nd for the new search area just outside the previous 120-square-kilometer location that was searched among the 7th Arc. The vessel has been contracted by Texas-based exploration company Ocean Infinity, which signed a no-cure no pay deal with the Malaysian government, which will see it receive more than $70 million if it finds the plane within 90 days. But unlike its press predecessor, Fergo Equator and Fergo Discovery and Hal- Halvia Harmony, whose progress is meticulously mapped by satellite by investigators, both amateur and professional, at their own expense following the constructor has proved more challenging. It reached the new search area on January 21st, and trusted observers such as UK-based space scientists Richard Cole and U.S.-based precision machinist Kevin Roop were able to post the regular maps to followers on Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit, but the change last Wednesday when Constructor went dark, sending everyone into a spin. I think that AIS transmission from the Constructor had been disabled. The question is whether this finger trouble for somebody adjusting the AIS system settings ahead of departing or a deliberate action. Comparisons have been made with the missing plane itself, which vanished from radar after its aircraft communication addressing and reporting system was switched off less than an hour after taking off from Kuala Lumpur on March 8, 2014. The irony is not lost among the MH370 watchers online when Reddit users commenting, Roger, Captain, and other responding, if it starts pinging in the Malaysian Strait, that would be something. Um, as predicted, some observers used a Blackout is an opportunity to back more outlandish theories about the Ocean Infinity backup plan should they fail to find the missing Boeing 777. Some speculate that the constructor took a secret detour to check out the wreckage of what is believed to be the SV Inca, a Peruvian-built transport ship that vanished en route to Sydney more than 100 years ago. In January 2016, MH370 search vessel of a Harmony stumbled across a shipwreck almost four kilometers below the surface in the seventh arc, initially making it for the plane's fuselage. SV Inca was last seen on March 10, 1911, when it set sail for Calo, Peru, bound for Sydney. There's been speculation about the cargo the vessel may have been carrying and inevitable chatter about the sunken treasure. And then it goes on and in in, in some other stuff. But is this that unusual for a search vessel to turn off its satellite? Not, Not really. No. You know, that, what that comes from, by the way, is the Orbital Communications Generation 2. That's a group of satellites, mm-hmm. and they're equipped with that what they call the automatic identification system. 
the yeah. AIS. And that reports, and it's almost going to be, well, it is. It's like the current one they're using for aircraft on the ADS-B, mm-hmm. which you have a transponder basically on your vessel, boat, or in this case, ships for the AIS. It hits up the satellites. It broadcasts it out. So those with the receivers, meaning other ships, can also see what the other traffic is. Sounds mm-hmm. really good if everybody used them. Right. And there is a requirement for certain ships to have them on all the time for that particular purpose, you know, collision and what have you. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, that ship is working on a contract for 90 days. You find it, you get paid. You don't find it, you get no pay. Now, if I was out there working like that and I had some iffy areas and people are tracking my every move, you know, 80 hours is a lot of territory or however many hours that was. What 80 hours is what I thought it was. Yeah. Well, and here, uh, here's a scenario I think that could justify what they're thinking is it doesn't sound like this is the first time that that offer has been put out there. So if they're offering this to multiple companies at in 90-day intervals, do you really want to give your competition the opportunity to know where you've already looked? Because right now it's pure speculative. So you're, you're hoping that you can put in less money than what they're going to pay and get that out. Uh, so when it comes time to bid the next part of the phase, if if the search area, area has been narrowed to the point where there's only one spot, then somebody may undercut you and you may have to lower your price just to get it and uh, you might not be able to make your money back. Yeah, Jim, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Jim, you had a comment too. Oh, now I was just going to say same thing about AAS. Uh, it's both satellite and it also is local. It has a local broadcast. So if you're close or there's satellite systems down, you can still pick it up off a uh, point-to-point repeater or a point-to-point system. Now, wouldn't a lot of the vessels of this size also have uh, radar? I would suspect yeah. most ocean-going vessels have radar. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Yeah. yeah, and that's where AIS helps because if you get a radar blip, if you've got your radar system tied into the AIS, it'll identify the vessel ah. on the blip, and then it'll give you size, speed. Um, if you've got your computer tied in with it, you can actually get photo of the vessel. So you'll see what you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could just use the marine traffic app, pull that up and uh, yep. tell exactly what you're looking at. Give the ship's bio, the specs, the port, the speed, everything. So mm-hmm. we, we use that quite a bit when we're out there. When, when you're on your surface interval, whether it's the straits, and you see a boat just to the north of you, you know, pull out your phone, marine traffic app, look it up. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes it a little bit different. I can remember going with my grandfather and doing uh, – vessel spotting and we had the binoculars and the id book now you got an app you can just see what the, what it is that's mm-hmm. heading your way well i'm sure you can still use the binoculars and the uh, id book if you wanted to well yeah there's nothing saying you couldn't but you'll always have your scud runners speaking of uh, shipwrecks darren the uh i saw an article in the news this morning where um mel fisher's grandson yeah um Believes they may have found a sister ship to the Atosha. Oh. Uh, carrying, well, supposedly the manifest had more gold on this sister ship than the Atosha had. Oh, jeez. But then again, the Atosha wasn't supposed to have all those emeralds on it. Uh-huh. So it was lost in that uh, 1622 hurricane. Yeah, same general area, same, you know, there were sister ships traveling together, and it went 
down. They're saying it's uh, they it's in deep water, too deep to dive. And right now they're working on getting an ROV down there to try to get a better reading. They've got sonar or side scan reading on it that puts it where they predict it should be or thought it might be. And so now they're in the process of investigating it. So you may see uh, hmm. a bigger announcement coming out sometime soon. Oh, nice. I wonder if they'll have a big court case on that one as well, or if they're going to be able to fall back in the precedent set with the Atosha. So, you know, Mel kind of lucked out with how that uh, court case went in his favor. Um, but lost the whole thing to the Spanish government, as I recall. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting, you know, anytime you got any gold like that, you got everybody with their hands out. Mm-hmm. That's why you don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, but when your you know, last name is Fisher and you're out there looking for shipwrecks, no matter what, you're going to raise some eyebrows. Well, the, the, the thing about that is, he, he, I mean, if you're going to be a little bit under the table, uh, he could always funnel that through the Atosha and just claim it was part of the Atosha. Well, what's interesting also is... Philippe Cousteau is out with him doing photography and documentation, he and his wife, for their Travel Channel uh, show. So you got Fisher and Cousteau together, grandsons. Yeah. Now you wonder, had had they found this before and then thought, you know, what's the best scenario to get the most PR out of it? So then you you just conveniently have this (laughs) high-profile gathering. Yeah, but you know, if they're pursuing the PR so diligently, it makes you wonder if that's really the the money maker on this is the uh, the contracts and you know. Yeah. We we, we see what's going on with Oak Island. Yeah. They... Uh, there's there's some money in that, you know. Yeah. And then we have some new underwater military statues that will honor veterans and create a scuba destination. Uh, the ABC Action News. This is out of Tampa Bay. They're saying the Pinellas County unveiled military statues that helped create the county's first underwater veterans memorial. The goals make a site a scuba destination. Brings back memories of when we were serving, veteran David A. Thomas said. Even though they're made of concrete, these military figures are softening the hearts of Sand K Beach. These are our guys. These are the people that we served with, that we knew, that we didn't know, that we never know. But they're our people, Thomas said. They are the first 24 of the life-size statues they'll made make up the county's first underwater dive memorial, honoring men and women who served in all branches of the military. Former Congressman David Jolly's uncle first came up with the idea years ago, starting Veterans Reef near Dundon in 2000. We thought about putting down some old tanks, but when we realized over time they would rust apart and start to look bad in the bottom, we wanted something to be around for a long time. Dr. Hayward Mathers, Professor Emeritus at St. Petersburg College said, this memorial called Circle of Heroes will be a quarter mile from the Veterans Reef, 40 feet down. Each statue will be secured to the limestone layer beneath the sand. Sometimes I've been dreaming about this for years, Matthew said. The whole project is expected to cost about a half million dollars, but the county is hoping it will bring in big money. Annual economic impact of just over $7 million of new job creation, of new dive community economic investment, for former Congressman David Jolly said. The hope is that this will... Uh, be a serene place to remember sacrifices. It's hard to explain to someone what something like this is doing for us. The goal is to place the first 12 statues underwater by the time of this summer. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's cool. 
Won't they? Won't they get covered with barnacles and all that kind of stuff? I it, I think that that's kind of the goal, the objective. That's a lot of money. They will, but I'm sure they'll be legible. You know, a number of years. Yeah. Now, are these concrete? So they're concrete. that's what they said. So why are twenty-four concrete life-size statues cost a half million dollars? Well, you probably got all the stuff as far as you know, shipping them out there and placing them upright. Again, this is something which uh, it's not really a job for you know volunteer scuba divers. It's probably something that haven't had done commercially. And uh, you know, when you you want them all standing upright, and they just they said anchored to the limestone below. I was yeah. trying to read the article, but uh, there seemed to be a number of autoplay clips in that, which kept them interfering <laughs> with the. Uh, with, uh, just trying well, to I, I, I think we built the military standard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did they come with a toilet oh, seat? <laughs> and a hammer. A hammer. Uh, no, I, th- I think they need to let us do it because, uh, you know, we're from the Chicago area. Al Capone used to do that for a lot less money. Yes, he did. Concrete overshoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, w- I would like to see something like that up here. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you could ever get it approved. Uh, I think it would it would do quite well. The fishermen would love it. Uh, you'd have you'd have them full of fish, and then it's something interesting to dive on. Depends on the depth, but them being full of fish, you know, uh, might just be full of burbot, or you know, you put it less than sixty feet when there's some bass on it. There, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've I've got some pictures of uh, some real tangle snarls uh, around shipwrecks. So, <laughs> well, yeah. Actually, I'm I'm, I'm putting together an article. Which I will show you shortly. Okay. Uh, which, which addresses that, and uh, you bring up the issue, the the question of uh, just how much do you guys want to fish around here? Because look at what's out there. You know? <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. We'll see how I, it goes. I can imagine at forty feet, if you had a downrigger, they're going to wire those up pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I remember out there to uh, you know, Boltzmann's barge diving out there. I'm not how, sure how the guy did it. But somebody put both of their downrigger balls in the upline on Boltima's barge last spring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, it was sitting a little funny. You know, the buoy was sitting a little funny. Like, yeah, it's because it's got like 24 pounds of lead sticking in that thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. The uh, I don't know. Jason and I were diving the uh, North Shore tug back in the spring. And, uh, yeah, we pulled up a real nice fishhawk probe complete with 12-pound cannonball on it there. Mm. Uh I was diving something, you know, up by uh, Manistee and uh, brought up another, you know, a temp, a temp probe as well. Well, temp probes are about 200 bucks a pop too, by the way. Yeah. Well, and that, and then and you want, we wonder why you sometimes have uh buoy lines and uh, getting cut. Those the guys are just so pissed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, there's, there's certain things that can go on with buoys, which can't get cut so well though, but uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's a, that's another story. Yeah, and then this. Oh, that's the same article. I got it twice. Yeah, let's see what we got here. Did it? Yeah, News Channel Five was uh, the same one. Let me see if there's any different. Ah, so it is. Because uh, how, how much how much attention I was paying. You want the Goliath one? Yeah, second shipwreck Goliath grouper found near Vizag. Is that really a name? That must uh, based on a newspaper. We must be talking about India somewhere. Of course, now computers locking up. What could be one of the top scuba destinations in the world? Oh, come on. I can read it for you if you want. Yeah, I, I've got it here. What's happened is that they've got so many 
freaking ads on it. The yeah. computer's having a hard time scrolling. Um, it said, uh, what they consider to be one of the top scuba destinations in the world, a second shipwreck with a critically endangered species of Goliath grouper was discovered by a team of experienced divers and dive instructors on Monday in this, the sea off the Bohemphium, uh, 45 kilometers from the city. This comes a month after a century-old shipwreck was unearthed in the region. The latest find is said to be about 23 meters long, or 23 meters below the surface, and is much larger, over 180 meters. Awakes Monday's discovery even more special, a spot of extremely rare species of grouper fish considered to be the keystone species of the ecosystem. The fish is entirely protected from the harvest in the U.S. and is recognized as critically endangered species by the U, the I, IUCN, International Union for Conservation of Nature. Is that, a, is that, is that just they just found a comp, uh, an organization? Yeah, I have no idea what kind of standing they have. I've never uh, heard before, but who's no. Yeah, scuba divers and inst- instructors from Payne. Oh, my goodness. Bengaluru. Yeah, Bengaluru, Hyderabad, oh, and Andaman Island in France were, this, were in the city exploring the waters near the first shipwreck over the past couple of weeks. And the latest findings say there are millions worth of treasure for the global scuba diving community. Many of them have cl- clocked more than 2,000 dives across the world, says to be the first time they have spotted the Goliath grouper. And what is the individual species of Goliath? Because it's so special. Because I understand Goliaths are rare, but not like, you know, extinct or endangered or anything. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah, um, rare site, scuba divers. Scuba diving instructor Balaram Nadu, director of Live In Adventures, who was among the first to discover the second shipwreck, told the Hindu, we were absolutely taken aback to spot a four-meter-long Goliath grouper coming out of the shipwreck. It's an extremely rare sight because of dwindling number worldwide. Divers flock to Florida to see these amazing creatures. The one we saw is likely to be 16 to 17 years old, weighing a mammoth 500 kilograms. Since it's Situated in the depths of the seabed, unlike the first shipwreck, this particular spot is open only for advanced divers. Most parts of the ship, which is said to be nearly a century old, are intact and placed upside down. Some of the other interesting aquatic life species spotted were a large school of barracuda, the trevally and jackfish, and a rich bed of coral like the star feathers, corals, sand corals, and whip corals. So it looks like they're trying to uh, get some additional protection, hoping that it will kickstart their dive industry there. Yeah, I don't think the fish is that rare, and I think they're just mostly trying to draw attention yeah. to uh, what they have, and by putting a lot of uh, big words, you know, rare, and you know, it's it's yeah. not. Well, you it, think it, it's it's cool, it's cool to see them. Don't get me wrong, but it's like not like it's yeah. you know, well, it's not like you're seeing a whale shark. You know, it's a lot more collectibles than our whale sharks. Well, may, maybe what they're trying to do is capture. Are, are there people from India who will go to Florida just to see them? And if you can highlight, hey, we got some right here. Come here and go diving. Then maybe that's the angle they're trying to work. And then we have human bones found in the Cape Cod shipwreck, and they're thinking they could belong to an infamous pirate. Researchers are examining whether human bones found in the Cape Cod shipwreck are those of the infamous pirate Samuel Black Sam Bellamy. The Winda Pirate Museum in Yarmouth, Massachusetts, said Wednesday that archaeologists uncovered the remains in the wreck last year near what they believe to be Bellamy's pistol. They've enlisted forensic scientists from the University of New Haven in Connecticut to compare DNA from the bones 
the DNA sample given by one of Bellamy's living descendants in the United Kingdom. The Wyandotte Gallery went down in stormy seas off the... I said gallery, galley. Went down in stormy seas off the Wellfleet in 1717, killing nearly all of its 150-person crew, including Bellamy, and leaving its ill-gotten riches in the bottom of the ocean. Discovered in 1984 by Barry Clifford, an explorer who owns the Pirate Museum. It was actually two ships, and it's pronounced Widya, but uh, yeah. it's also a traveling exhibit. Yeah, if you come, if you hear about real pirates coming to your area, that is the traveling exhibit for the Widya, which I saw at the uh, well, the Public Museum in Grand Rapids about two years ago. I think Jim, Jim, didn't you see it someplace as well? You were mentioning to me. Yeah, I saw it in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Sounds like in Philadelphia, it was a lot bigger. Show them what they had up in Grand Rapids. I know you were telling me about a number of displays you saw, which I didn't see in Grand Rapids, but they probably scaled it down based upon the size of the museum or display area, I'm sure. Yeah, it's definitely a good good exhibit. It's kind of cool in that if you do get to that exhibit, you know, they have, it's a very much a hands-on exhibit. They have uh, authentic pieces of eight. They're anchored down, so don't get any ideas, Dave. But you can go and put your hands on uh, authentic pieces of eight there. Um, they've got, you know, pieces, a great deal of artifacts, which they have excavated off the ship. They have a number of cannons they pulled out of, pulled out of there. I guess they actually found it using a magnetometer. Um, gentleman had heard the story from his grandfather about there being a uh, pirate ship out there, and he'd always got, had this idea. It'd be kind of cool to go out and find it. And when he got older, he put together the equipment and went out looking. They had some problems because all that, that same area was uh, used for shelling uh, artillery practice during World War One, and they did come across some unexploded shells out there. In the, <laughs> in the, uh, nothing which was, you know, no one was injured when the shells, we understand, but they did come across some unexploded ones out there. Yeah, you, you can find out which ones are 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 good or not by just hitting them with a sledgehammer a couple times. That's usually the yeah. recommended. Isn't there like a Bugs Bunny cartoon about that. Yeah, you know, yeah, that was that's it. Bugs, you know, why not for us? Yeah, that that was so. the quality control in the factory. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's a heck of a of a uh, of a of an exhibit. Also, want to point out though the uh, the Woodyuk Alley was originally a uh, a slave ship. The uh, Bellamy pirate crew took it from a group of Dutch traders, and uh, so there is a rather uh, you know dark history of this boat as well it's not simply you know, a, just a pretty boat but it, it had a the, the the original owners they took it from were trafficking and in slaves it was uh you want to point that out it's a that's a big part of the exhibit which they do make quite clear to you as well so uh yeah it's a really awesome exhibit i guess in some areas they'll have uh you know uh actors on it as well and very informative I understand this is not the first bones they have pulled off of this uh, galley, though. I think Jim was telling me about there being some other bones, which I didn't see, but he saw it in Philadelphia. I think we may have lost Jim. Or yeah, one of the one of the uh, crew members on the uh, the Widya. At one point, they took a uh, passenger ship captive, and sometimes when they take a when they take a vessel. You know, people on the uh, ship are given the opportunity to join the pirate crew. And there was a young lad who wanted to join the pirate crew. And I want to say he was about eight years old. Yeah. And the, the pirates were, you know, a little bit taken aback by this, like, nah, we, we don't want to babysit, you know, 
for here. And the, and the kid was so insistent on joining the pirate crew that he, he, he put a knife to his own mother's throat and said, take me or she goes. Wow. I guess he made his point. He was, that he, he had the stuff for the crew. And I'm sure mom didn't shed any tears either. <laughs> take the Yeah. It's, it's... But, uh, during early excavations of the Widya, one of the things they did find was a child's, I'm not sure it was a femur or a tibia tibia, but there was definitely a child's leg bone, which was found in that, that confirmed the uh, story. The uh, Widya, actually there was another ship along with it too, because uh, these pirate crews, when they were successful, they might have an entire flotilla. You know, when Blackbeard sacked the city of Charleston, he actually had like seven ships at that point. You know, these pirates would have put together their own little armies and go out there and just successful. And, you know, Bellamy had two ships when he was, well, it was actually, it was a gale that sunk him there out of Cape Cod. And so, yeah, these 150 pirates are talking about were distributed amongst two, two ships. And there were, I believe, 13 survivors. And, well, great, you struggled your way ashore off the pirate ship, and they were all taken in and hung. They, they were tried and hung, and that was the end of them. So uh, they they were about two years, I want to say, wasn't it 17, 15, 17, 17, uh, quite successful. Uh, Bellamy, originally, he was wooing the daughter of a plantation owner in uh, up in Massachusetts area. The uh, plantation owner forbade his daughter from seeing him because you know, at the time, Bellamy was uh, simply a, a, a trade. He didn't have a, a large income and could not support the daughter in the customs she, uh, she was used to. Well, Bellamy thought, I'll show you. Well, be a made man. And he uh, went out and became a pirate. Was immensely successful at it for two years. And was actually in the process of selling, uh, of sailing back to Massachusetts to claim his his bride, of course, two years later, who knows? Maybe she's married and got a couple of kids by now. But uh, he was in the process of going back to claim this uh, plantation owner's daughter when the, uh, I guess it was, a, it was a minor hurricane, came in and wrecked him. That was the end of him there. Yeah, if you get a chance, that is a marvelous program to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost wondering if maybe this announcement was just a little bit... Uh cooked up to uh, help sell tickets for the for the museum. Sell them. Sell them. Go yeah. in and see it. You know, I'll, I'll, I, hey, I'm plugging it right now, if you don't mind. But it, it is a, I mean, I was really impressed with it. Of course, I'm, I'm if, it, if it was a ship, I'm impressed. If it was a rowboat, I'm impressed, you know. I'm impressed easy with boats. But. Well, I think that's all I kicked up for Scuba the News this week. But I have an extra. I don't have a safety thing, but I do have an article I'd like to sure, talk go, about. Go for it. I just put it on the, whatever it is, I just put it on. But if you look at it, that'll be the keyword key where I'm at. And that was, and what it is, it was an article that was in the paper here, a rather large one. And actually, it's been the fourth article in the last two weeks on Lake Michigan. And this one I thought was quite interesting. It's called, Lake Michigan has become dramatically cleaner in the last 20 years, but at a deep cost. And not going to go through the whole item, but what I really enjoyed about it, and I'm going to read part of it, it says, decades ago, Lake Michigan teamed with nutrients and green algae, creating a brown, greenish hue that resembled the mouth of the Midland River rather than a vast open water. 
But then the lake's peak complexion was less inviting to swimmers and divers and kayakers. But it did support a robust fishing industry as several commercial companies patrol for perch, or fishermen, uh, cattle allowing for trout. But in the last 20 years, Lake Michigan has undergone a dramatic transformation. Uh, satellite images between 1998 and 2012, and this we talked about before, it identified that Lake Michigan and Huron are now cleaner than Lake Superior. And they're saying, obviously limiting the amount of agricultural and sewage runoff in the lake has had an immense impact on this event. But, however, the emergence of invasive mussels, which number in the trillions, and have the ability to filter the entire volume of Lake Michigan in four to six days, has had an even greater effect. And it goes back through here talking about, like a lot of people are now saying, Lake Michigan is as blue as Lake Tahoe. Well, the bad part about that is Lake Tahoe doesn't have a lot of life in it. It's really pretty, but there's not a lot of sea life. And they were talking about while appealing, the clarity comes at a significant cost of wildlife, that with the algae, and not the algae, but the uh, mussels, filtering the lake, mussels decimated the phytoplankton, which is the single-cell green algae that serves as basic for the food chain. It's killed it. And for the past decade, prey fish like alewives have remained at a pre or at a historic low, which made them scale back the annual stocks of predators such as king salmon, which is what people go for. And they still say right now they started a startling evolution is called into question the uh, Great Lake marine life and its seven billion dollar fishing industry. They say cleaner is not necessarily better. Cleaner water means less phytoplankton. They're the building blocks in the food web. The little fish eat the algae, and the bigger fish, the fish eat the little fish. And uh, from the standpoint, they're saying we can come to a total collapse because you don't have the organisms you need now to support the fish that we currently do have. So it's a really good article. It goes through and talks about and tells you what they're doing with the algaes and the uh, zebra mussels and kraken mussels. And let's see if I can find one more item down here. They go in this whole aspect to about how they balance it out with what fish eats what fish and how they can get around it. And one of the bottom lines is a lot of the fish are now beginning to eat the quagga mussels, the small ones, when they just develop. Because if you got nothing else to eat, you eat anything. So they're saying it still remains to be seen what's going to happen in the next 10 years because right now it's not looking good. Secondary to that, there was articles again now uh, on the invasion of the carp. And if you do have any vegetation in the shallows, if the carps get in, you're going to lose what little vegetation you had. So in one fact, it'll be self-limiting to how much carp really survives, but then it's really going to screw the rest of the ecosystem. It's a good article. It's worth reading. And uh, that's my plug for today. That's a, that's a good one. I've, I've heard other versions of that in the last few months. That seems to be that common theme that you know, the water's getting just a little bit too clear because we need a certain amount of uh, nutrients, but we need we need the good nutrients. We don't need, you know, mercury and lead and other stuff like that. To be- well, what, what, one of the bad parts that they didn't realize is with trillions of those things dying and mm-hmm. eating, it says um, the voracious eaters are polluting the lake bottom with feces. As the sunlight reaches greater depth because of clarity, it converts nutrients from the muscles excrement into a nuisance algae known as clodophora. And you guys know what yeah. we mean by clodophora. I've yeah. talked about that for many years. During storms, 
the wave action rips the carpet up of that algae, washes it ashore. It stinks like hell and has a high propensity to kill the birds that eat it mm-hmm. and or the stuff around it. Yeah. And that is another issue they're coming about. What's going to happen from that? Yeah, and that's something we see down there because when you're by a, a shipwreck which has a lot of mussels on it, you see on the bottom kind of a carpet extending from that. You know, I mean, it's definitely kind of a you know brownish, greenish, you know, bunk you know, that's on the on the on the seafloor uh, around the wreck. That must be the the excrement the excrement from the mussels. Didn't really think about that, but yeah, yeah, they they got a poop too. So. Yeah, so it improves our diving abilities and our visibility, but there's a big drawback to the environment. Well, and it makes you wonder, and with you know them removing all of the single cell organisms from the water, uh, are they going to end up starving themselves out? We've kind of had that with uh, different species up there. When they, you know, I don't know what the alewives are going through it right now, where they, you know, enough of the food base is removed from the environment, then they're no longer able to support themselves and their, their population crashes. And How that's what happened. And you're right. That's exactly what happened. They had a program last year at the uh, shipwreck festival there in, in Ann Arbor. And they were talking about this in one of the presentations I went to. And if you look at the spike of when they maxed out, I mean, and, and they're saying trillions now, there were more then live. And it just came beating down because they, like you said, they starved themselves out. Yeah. But now they're, they've sort of equalized out, and they're maintaining, but they're still now screwing up the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah, because I've, I've noticed that, that uh, they don't seem to be quite as dense on some of the objects. It's, it's possible to see a wreck with bare wood that they're just not as quick to inhabit. It seemed like you'd have, in the spring you'd have the, the bare boards, and by midway in they'd all be covered. But uh, you can find bare spots still. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind right. of odd. There, there are areas which they just don't like. You know, we see it quite often on the on the flat decks that uh, you know, while they might really enjoy the uh, the walls of the wreck, the chines, because there's a lot of current goes across those. When once you get you know inside the hull where, where the flat deck is, it's quite common to see that 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 clear of muscles. And that's part of that aspect about they overate and overfed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got video of like the North and South Pier, for example, when Five, six years ago, the vegetation or the mussels on the side of the pier would go out to approximately two and a half inches. After that, it would get so heavy, it would slough off. Mm-hmm. If you go out there now, you've got a steel plate again and a majority of the places. Hmm. All right. Well, then, so it sounds like the the, uh, the glue which they make, I know there was, we spoke about this on the podcast well, probably six months ago. Uh, someone was studying the, uh, the biologic glue made by the mussels. Sounds like that has a, has a shelf life. You know, it only lasts so long. Uh, nice. It's nice to know that that actually breaks down. So I, I was wondering if the once they're adhered, if they're they're stuck there for eternity. But it sounds like over over the years, they they will they will drop off. So oh yeah. Okay. So if they, if these things die off, then there is hope of seeing the wood out there again. Of course, it might lose visibility, but you know, you know it's uh, the way thing, the the way the growth was going for a while. A lot of us have been concerned that these shipwrecks were eventually going to be just a, a rock. You know, you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell what you're looking anymore because the muscle would be so thick on them there. And we've all seen shipwrecks where the muscles were, you know, three, four, five inches thick on these things. Yeah, Karen in the chat room was pointing out that uh, 
she was talking to an aquatic researcher a few weeks ago and was saying that the muscles are so thick they formed an anaerobic layer uh, around the wreck. Well, anaerobic was an area where there is no oxygen, a good thing because it prevents uh, de- uh, decomposition. Something about the anaerobic bacteria was destroying the uh, the wood and the metal, so it might not have been so much that you know the the lack of oxygen that was hurting the wreck. It's just what went along with it. Mm-hmm. Let's see, uh, Kevin. Did you have a, a wreck of the week? Yes, I do. Uh, let me see. I'm pull this baby up here. Uh, this is going to be one in tech depth, one which uh, not many of our listeners are going to be able to personally visit, but uh, you can find information on it online with some really good pictures on it there. And tonight we're going to talk about the Michigan, you know, not to be confused with SS Michigan. You know, Michigan has been used quite a bit when it came to, to naming ships. I'm sure if you were to go to the uh, Great Lakes Shipwreck file, you'd find a half a dozen different Michigans out there. This is one which was uh, found by... Uh, Michigan Shipwreck Risk Association, I believe in 2004, uh, no, 2005, yeah. It was discovered on June 11th, 5. Uh, I'm going to be taking this from uh, michiganshipwrecks.org. Yeah, if you click on the uh, shipwrecks found, one of the shipwrecks they talk about is the Michigan. And see, this was this is a fairly recent find, so it does have all, well, it's, it's supposed to have all the artifacts in it, but from what I'm hearing, it sounds like, at least in the lamp room in different areas, that uh, the artifacts sadly are disappearing off of this year. So and we still do have a fair amount of, uh, you know, people helping themselves art- to artifacts down there. But the, uh, let's see if I can get you the background on the ship before I tell you about the sinking here. Well, on February 9th, 1885, the Michigan left its winter port off Grand Haven with Captain Redmond Prinville and 29 men aboard to assist the steamer Nida, which was stuck fast in the ice. The Michigan also became caught in the ice, which was especially difficult that winter. On Tuesday, February 17th, after more than a week, it was decided that 17 of the most hardy men would be chosen to walk to shore since there was not enough food for all. The temperature was about 10 degrees below zero as the party armed with axes, pikes, ropes, and rations began their trek around 7 a.m. The first members of the crew reached the reached shore at West Costco Township in Allegan County, about 40 miles south of where the vessel departed, at about 5 p.m. after spending 10 hours walking across the mountain's terrain of moving ice. The party was housed by the local residents, then made their way to the train station at Bravo for the trip back to Grand Haven. On the 21st, crew member George Sheldon left the at 7 a.m. and went the distance to shore only to return the vessel the following day laden with cigars, tobacco, first fellow crew members. And I'm going to scale down now to actually what the boat finally did sink. Uh, on Thursday, March 19th, several weeks later, the Michigan was finally finally was claimed by the ice and slipped to a watery grave. Just prior to the ship's demise, the crew swung a lifeboat over the side. Half the crew moved the boat a safe distance from the doomed vessel, while the others prepared to also abandon ship. Captain Prinville was the last to leave the mortally wounded ship. The crew watched from about a quarter mile away as a chip of her mast disappeared in about 300 feet of water, according to local newspaper accounts. Trip over the mountainous ice to the Tug Arctic, which was lying about four miles off, took several hours. The crew managed to push the lifeboat along the ice and reach the Tug without further loss or injury. Uh, let's see. This boat was found by MSRA in 2005, and we have some marvelous pictures on their website about the boat. Um, 
showing it when it was, uh, you know, up on top, up, up on the up on the surface of the water in uh, in Holland. We do have GPS numbers on it. We have lots of pictures. We have pictures of the side scan when they when it was found. There's a uh, short video on the boat. Lots and lots of good pictures here. Ship has a beautiful double wheel. Uh, but again, this boat sits in 270 feet of water, so it's not something which many of us are going to see. Uh, we have to kind of enjoy it based upon looking at these pictures here. I believe there's some video of it on YouTube as well. Uh, there's a nice picture here, uh, nice rendering by uh, Robert Dornbos. That's the that's the Michigan, the SS Michigan, lost in 1885, found in 2005. And that is our shipwreck of the week. Thank you, Kevin. That is cool. Uh, who was it we had on the, the program who had done quite a few dives on that one? We had uh, Bob Underhill. Bob Underhill. That's that's right. He said that was one of his favorites. Yeah, I think that is his favorite. In the, uh, at least that's his favorite when it comes to uh, the, the, the wrecks with muscles on them. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, kind of sticks mostly to Lake Superior wrecks these days. I'm going to paste this link. I apologize to the chat. I probably should have pasted this before I told you the story so you can follow along. But there's a link to what I was reading about it. But yeah, um, that is Bob Underhill's favorite wreck in Lake Michigan. Okay. And he was the first person to dive it. Yeah. Cool wreck, though. Very cool yeah. wreck. I'm a little jealous. Yeah. Uh, Jim, do you have anything going on in the dive shop? Oh, not this week. We were hoping to do an ice dive and a class on Sunday, but with the storm coming in, uh, we've decided not to do that this week, so we're going to reschedule it. Okay. Let's see, Mac, do we have anything, Any anybody get any diving in? Well, other than the YMCA pool, I did not. I did notice the uh, Coasties were there again. That's actually twice in the last two weeks, practicing their uh, ice recovery of victims. Yeah. And it is sort of funny to watch them, you know, struggle around when you don't have the ice to work with and they're in swim trunks. <laughs> That's what I was, I was going to get. I'm like, what, the, they're doing that in the pool? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, well, I mean it, if you're going to practice I'd like to practice where it's warm first. Yeah. Oh, and you know, and they have that looks like a surfboard with buoys on it. So they, you know, they put the person in it, and then they haul them up the side of the pool, writing mm-hmm. that you had a, you know, an ice shelf. That's still pretty awesome, and it is good practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, any sort of practice where you're working on the muscle memory and getting prepared is going to help you. But at some point, you probably do need to get out in the the ice and the cold and uh, get some practice in that way. I know the Coasties actually do that at least once a week out there in the river. I was listening to them talk about some of the wow. crazy people who go fishing out there, especially when it's lousy weather. Mm-hmm. They just do not realize you fall in the water, you're dead because we can't get there fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people don't don't get it. I didn't realize they were practicing that much. My understanding that since they don't use the boat a lot, that's one of the required items they wind up doing is, is practicing recovery. Mm-hmm. Because generally, by the time you get there, it's, it's toast. Yeah. yeah Except, well, that guy last week we talked about, remember the one who jumped off the bridge? Nobody knew he jumped. The ice didn't break. So he's down there broken on the ice until somebody spotted him. Oh. No. Well, they had a heck of a response for that. Two of the responders got more wet than he did as they tried to recover him. Wow. How bad were his injuries? Well, they, he thought it obviously he was going to commit suicide. So when he jumped over and hit the ice, it was stuck enough that he bounced. He oh, didn't break wow. the ice. Ouch. Yeah, and then be, you know, you're on the ice freezing to death now, but, you know, that's supposed to be a painless way to go. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I can think of a lot better ways. <laughs> Let's see. And then, uh, as we've been talking about since the beginning of January, is we're getting into dive show season. So we have yeah. our world underwater coming up. And what weekend is that? It's going to be uh, next weekend. Next weekend. Next weekend already. Wow. It's going to be uh, February 17th and 18th. It's at the uh, Chicago Marriott, mm-hmm. Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to make it this year because we'll we'll still have robotics going on. So we are just, we'll, be, we'll be winding down with our, our build. Well, and then I will the, be there on the 17th. Yep. Amy and I are making a road trip. We actually got room for two more. So we're heading there for sure. Excellent. Then after that, we do have the Great Lakes Shipwreck Festival. That's going to be March 3rd. Uh, that's going over on in Ann Arbor. It's at uh, well, Washington College. It's a heck of a good show. Um, I'm looking at the, let's see, I'm not seeing actually a roster of what they have for shows coming up here. But I'm sure we're going to hear about uh, David Trotter finding the Clinton. We're probably going to hear about uh, you know, Noah coming across the, uh, what was it, the uh, two, two shepherds they found, the uh, Choctaw and the Ohio. Uh, it's been a pretty good – last year was a pretty good year for finding shipwrecks. So we're going to hear about those, and that is, like I say, March 3rd. And also we have uh, Mysteries and Histories. That is MSRA show coming on March 24th, 7 p.m. at the Knickerbocker Theater in downtown Holland. I uh, recommend if you go to Mysteries and Histories, you definitely want to get there early. It's a good show, but the parking – these luck be desired down there. So unless you wanted to park in two miles away and hike and do the winter snow back, I'd recommend uh, getting a little early. Yeah. So so David in the chat room is saying that this may be the last year for the shipwreck festival. It is is are you referring to the one in Ann Arbor? Okay. I wonder why that's last year. That's been a long running show. Not quite as long as our world underwater, but gotta be a pretty close second. I do know the number of presentations has been reduced this year instead of three rooms. Mm-hmm. or more there's only two this time and there is a listing that you can locate when you go to the site yeah. for the particular items they're giving yeah i'm I'm wondering would that be they said it's hard to get support for the show and, and i can understand they were probably pulling in uh, some sponsorships to offset some of the costs so uh, that may be going down it can also be a challenge with volunteers uh, you... well and it's it's kind of a shame you know, like we're seeing at all these shows you know, I mean, of course, you know, ghost ships did not happen this year. Sounds like they were, uh, they lost the previous venue. We're not able to secure one in time to put, put the show together this year. But uh, we've been seeing at a lot of these shows where, you know, there's quite a few open booths, lots of floor space not being yeah. used. Um, well, the, the economy of the, the shows has changed. I'm seeing it at the trade shows, even in industry, though they're consolidating rapidly. And it's getting to the point where if you're a brand leader in a particular space, people know who you are, whether you go to the show or not. And they used to soak those brand leaders for the largest space. And a lot of them aren't willing to pay for it. And without those anchor sponsors, you almost have to charge everybody else more and everybody else more can't afford it. They were barely making it before. So it starts this uh, kind of death spiral. So we're probably getting close to the point where, um, you know, many of these smaller niche shows are, are going away. It's got to be, you know, you've got the attendance side of it, so you have to have something that is entertaining enough to draw people in that they're going to do and value. 
and it has to be unique enough that they they if you come every year you don't say oh I saw that. Um, yeah, yes. you know the the shows at least uh, Dave Trotter puts on. You know, uh, you know Dave Tonneman's talking about uh, how the uh, competition from YouTube and social media is hurting the shows because you can find a lot of this online. I do want to say though that at least the stuff from Trotter, you know, you can't find that on YouTube. You know, not for a couple of years. You know, he kind of keeps that locked down for a while. Uh, Dave's well, this year, a of, go ahead, Mac. I was going to say this year, Trotter. The only thing he's talking about is the last whale back, the steamer Clifton. Mm-hmm. That's the topic he's going to have. I can give you a quick rundown if anybody wants to know. Yeah, go for it. Okay, it's basically it's in two sections. One is Great Lakes, and then we have the travel and technical and educational. And I always went to the either technical or educational. Anyway, um, Wreck of the Schooner Plymouth, uh, Kevin McGee, fire, uh, final run, uh, Storms of 1913-1940, Rick's Mixer, The Last Whaleback, Steamer Clifton, Dave Trotter, uh, Collision Off of Pure Isle, and that's Dan Fountain, Shipwreck Tales of the Great Lakes by Joan Fosberg, and the uh, 60th anniversary sinking of the Bradley, and the last item was Dive Log 2017 Under the Thumb. And under the travel technical educational, it was Legends of the Lost, Lost Legends of the Lake, Wild, Insane, Extraordinary. I have no idea what that's about, but I might go look at that one. Uh, James Mott is giving one, but it's, the subject has not been identified yet. Other than is Octopus, Cuttlefish, How Smart Are They? Uh, Merging Dive Locations in Malaysia, 30 Years of Midwest Diving by Rich Sanoski, and uh, Explore Coastal Shipwrecks by Luke Clyburn. Those are the topics. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like a, a a nice schedule. Well, I'll be there for sure. I'm sure we'll see lots of uh, familiar faces of the enjoy of the Shipwreck Festival. You can't go to a booth or bumping into somebody you know. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who tunes in and downloads. If you like the show, you can visit us on our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Twitter at scubaobsessed, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. And then we can always use your support. Uh, we have a lot of expenses that go with putting the show on, and if we had a little bit more money, we could do some other interesting things that I'm sure many of you would like. So if you can afford the cup of coffee a month for the show, head on over to our website, click on the Patreon link, and give us a little bit of support. And with that Patreon support of $3 or more, you get early access to the show notes. Uh, everybody else will eventually get them, but uh, you get them first. Um, Anybody have anything they would like to plug? How about you, Mac? I'm, like I said, going to, planning on going to Our World Underwater. I'm still debating what time I'm going to be going, and I have a few chores to do while I'm there. So, other than that, and uh, I will probably try to give a hand for uh, when we do get that other ice dive schedule. But that should be fun. Okay. How about you, Jim? You got anything you want to do a call out for? No, nothing in particular. And then, Kevin, you've always got somebody you want to support. Well, you know, I was, my main thing tonight was I really wanted to plug the uh, dive shop that covered in spades. Also want to encourage our listeners to support your local dive shop. We all like to get those bargains online, but those bargains online are going to fill your scuba tanks or service your regulators. Also, our local libraries are really hurting for our support. You know, it's uh, sad how many folks think you can find everything you need on the internet, you know, just to, Last week, I spent some time down at the Kamloops Public Library looking at the archives for the Kamloops Gazette and was really impressed with just how much detail they had there. I mean, you know, they haven't got the whole thing there, but, you know, back when it was Kamloops Telegraph and 
you know, the staff knows the history of it. And this is stuff which you just can't find online. You know, this is stuff which is not being digitized. It's stuff which, uh, if the libraries close and go away, there is a ungodly amount of information which can be lost forever. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of historians, you know, pine and rant and rave about the loss of the Library of Alexandria, and yet we are losing our libraries today. So support your local libraries, use your local libraries. So vote for, you know, whenever you got uh, the local millage coming up and there's money going to the library, vote for the library. Hook these guys up. We need them. That's my plugs. Those are my plugs. Okay. Well, I think we are getting to that time of the show. I don't have one great long joke, so I, I, I may torture everybody with a, with a few of them. So uh, let's see how this goes. Uh, two antennas met on a roof, fell in love, and got married. The ceremony wasn't, wasn't, gosh, the ceremony wasn't much, but the reception was excellent. Uh, let's see. Two cannibal, two cannibals. Goodness. Two cannibals were eating a clown. One says to the other, does this taste funny to you? Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, we'll, we'll skip a few of them. Uh, a jumper cable walks into a bar. The bartender says, I'll serve you, but don't start anything. Yeah, getting warm. Getting warm. Oh, there's that, that last episode from a few weeks ago. We can pull, pull those one, those get up. There's a couple of owners out of that. Of course, I suppose we put Derek through it once. You don't want to go to him again. <laughs> yeah. A man walks into a bar with a slab of asphalt under his arm and says, a beer, please, and one for the road. I think that does it. I, I, you know, does does four or five bad ones does make a make a really bad one? The badness is cumulative. That's what you're Yeah. Okay. So until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time doing it. And please submit some new jokes to Derek. <laughs> Got some more family jokes, but I don't think Darren would like to put them on the air. I, I can't. Uh, I do enjoy those jokes, Mac, but they uh, they uh, won't quite make the cut. <laughs>